Ameda Ena Salinas, software engineer and host of The Women in Tech Show, a show where women in tech talk about technology. Charity Majors is co-founder of Honeycomb, a tool that allows engineers to inspect and debug complex systems. Charity explains what makes a system complex and how engineers can learn about their systems with a rich, data-driven approach. We also talked about pricing strategies for software and why this is challenging. Charity also talked about selling a company that was not profitable yet to Facebook. It was interesting to learn about when to sell a company and when to keep it and grow it. To support the show, you can write a review on iTunes. Thank you. Charity Majors, co-founder of Honeycomb, is joining us today. Charity, welcome to the Women in Tech show. Thank you. Honeycomb is a tool for engineers to inspect and debug complex systems. What constitutes a complex system? Um, well, I come from systems land, right? Where the last generation of infrastructure and architecture, like the canonical model was the LAMP stack. LAMP stack where you have, you know, Linux, Apache, uh, MySQL, and Perl, Python, whatever. The, the fundamental model was you have an application and you have a storage layer. And by and large, you could build the system and then look at it, predict how it was going to break, and write monitoring checks. That really isn't true anymore. <laughs> like, it hasn't really been true for a while, but now it's just massively not true. Now we have everything from microservices um, and you know, distributed systems, we have deployment models like continuous integration, we have, you know, we have Agile, we have polyglot persistence, we, you know, a, a company may have half a dozen different database types, um, may have 30 or 40 different services. You, If you're doing mobile, you have, you know, dozens, um, hundreds of different combinations of device types, platforms, platform versions, um, You have IoT. Like in all of these ways, you know, it's driving towards more and more complexity. And that means that there are no easy questions anymore. You've automated them out of existence. Every time you get alerted now, it should be a new question. And the hard thing about, about new things is that they're new and you don't know how long it's going to take. It can be really, really challenging to track down root causes. And that's what we help with. Was this evolution of systems driven by the number of users or connected devices increasing? Uh, that can be one thing, certainly. Uh, it's not primary. It's not the primary driver, though. I would say that the complexity of the services that we offer is a big driver. Um, you know, if you're a website, I mean, think of the difference between Amazon of today um, and your little mom and pop. Um, bookseller of, you know, the late 90s, you know, when, when, when most of us started getting on the internet. Um, it's not as a function of size so much as it is the breadth and diversity mm -hmm. of, of what you're offering. And Honeycomb allows software engineers to explore their structured data. In what ways does the data have to be structured? So, like, it's the difference between writing out a log line that's just like, you know, a sentence Uh, the description, and writing out like a JSON blob. 
Um, uh, so it's just like, you know, key value pairs in, in a flat JSON object. And this is really interesting for a whole bunch of reasons. I think it's a shift that's way, it's long overdue, and you're going to see a lot of it in the, in the next couple of years. Because if you, like, it's no harder, right, to write out a JSON blob than it is to write out a string. Um, but if you write out that JSON blob, um, you have you already have structured data, and that means that like you don't have to store the original raw um, the the raw log string um, as your you know your your canon um, because the the structured data is the original data. This saves you a lot of cost, right? Because you don't have to save the original thing and then it decomposed into into the structured data, and you know. Also, we um, we don't deal with um, there 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 are no schemas um, and there are no indexes. Um, everything is equally fast to search upon, and every combination of things is you know roughly equally fast to search upon. Okay, so structuring the data, like you said, improves the speed and efficiency. Yeah, efficiency, less memory, and this helps with data-driven debugging, right? It does. Like, most of us are not debugging using data. We're debugging using um, our intuition, um, using, you know, dashboards that we have built during past outages. <laughs> you know, we're, we're always, like, looking at, at the consequences of the, of the last outage. Um, and, we're, and we're leaning on senior engineers in a way that's really unhealthy and it's really hard. It really leads to burnout. You know, I was on my honeymoon, on Hawaii, on the beach, and I would get called, you know, they're like, we're so sorry, we don't want to interrupt you, but Parse has been down for an hour, and we don't know when the platform's going to get up. And like, I don't have my laptop, I'm on the beach. But I, I would just start asking questions, and pretty soon I'd be like, it's Redis, it's probably Redis, like, I don't even know why, but I can smell it, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and that's really invaluable, but it's really hard on those engineers, it's really hard to transfer that kind of knowledge to to someone else who's just started because it doesn't really knowledge. It's, it's like instinct. So what you're trying to do is have the system determine those type of insights. Well, I mean, if we're gathering all, we're we're focusing on gathering as much data horizontally as possible. And you can sample it vertically to control costs, uh, but. But the, the thing about um, answering new questions is, if you don't know, like if it's something new, you don't know what data you need, right? So you should be very much incentivized to gather all the little scraps of data from, you know, we also, one thing that we do that is pretty novel is we, we are a centralized collector for everything from your client side, um, you know, we can, you can use it in mobile SDKs, um, to the software that you're instrumenting yourself, where you have the most control, and the software that you get from vendors, where you know maybe you're tailing a log file and creating your structured data out of that, and you can tie it all together in one place. So you can trace an event from you know because because increasingly like databases can live partially on your mobile device and partially partially on the server and partially partially in transit, you know, and and you don't want to be in a situation where you're just looking at your siloed view of the world. And you're having arguments with other teams basically about the nature of reality because you all have a competing uh, view of it. So what you're saying is you're integrating different teams through the system? Absolutely. Like, we definitely look at what we're doing. It's, it's very simple. We're keeping the interface very simple. We want this to be... We want to be democratizing, you know, availability to metrics. We want all the teams to be able to speak this language. It's very... It's very stripped down, it's elegant, it's designed. It's really important to us to build a consumer quality 
data um, and like a tool for developers. This is the thing that, you know, my co-founder Christine and I, um, we met at Parse. I ran back in engineering. She built the analytics product and worked on the UX. And, um, you know, Parse, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's a, it was a platform uh, for m- mobile apps acquired by Facebook in 2013. Just shut down. Rest in peace. Um, but, like, people were passionate about Parse. People loved it. Even though it was never, quote-unquote, better than the AWS Mobile SDK. You know, the AWS SDK always had more functionality, but it wasn't opinionated and intuitive and de- designed in ways that, you know, it, an opinionated tool makes it possible for you to predict how it's going to behave. You don't have to memorize this behavior. You can predict it. It makes sense according to their view of the world. That was really formative for me because I come from the back end side and I don't really tend to uh, gravitate towards like valuing design naturally and just seeing how people fell in love with that. It has been really inspirational in how we think about this. Yeah. And you mentioned Parse is a platform for mobile apps. And is this, was this mostly for people to host their services to be used by the mobile app? Or what exactly do you mean by a platform? Yeah. I mean, you could use our SDKs at Parse and our API to create a fully functional mobile app without ever writing any backend code. All you had was your mobile uh, SDK for iOS and uh, Android. And we had over a million mobile apps of every type that you can imagine. You know, everything from games, social apps, um, stores, commerce, Um, Disney hosted mobile apps on us, you know, it was big with advertisers and marketers. Um, and, and it was, it was great. Like it put a lot of really powerful tools in the hands of engineers who either didn't have time to worry about the backend stack or knew that we could do it better or, you know, they didn't have to learn it at all. You know, they could take a couple of classes in mobile development and, and be very productive. Since you brought it up, let's talk a bit more about Parse. I heard an interview you did with Software Engineering Daily where you mentioned also being acquired by Facebook and that you were not profitable yet when you were acquired. How do you assign a fair monetary value for an acquisition? (laughs) Literally, um, it's worth whatever someone's willing to pay for it. You know, it's it's so ridiculous. Like, in some ways, like, Silicon Valley is, is, like, in some ways, it's a great capitalist engine of wealth, and in some ways, it's like a Ponzi scheme, you know? Like, but what was valuable was our users. What was valuable was the tens of thousands of engineers who had used us, who wanted to keep using us, and who found value there. It's really hard to assign a dollar value, and in the end, it's just, what are you willing to pay, and what are we willing to sell for? Okay, but from your end, you had some intuition of how much X users are worth or something? No, I didn't. Uh, I wasn't a founder. I was just one of the earliest engineers. Okay. And um, there's there are all kinds of like shorthand um, calculations that people will tell you. They're all kind of bullshit. But the only important thing is that you and your acquirer roughly agree on something. Okay. And they thought that Parse brought a lot of value because they knew how much developers loved us. And Facebook was really struggling with um, with their platform product at that time and trying to... Uh, not annoy developers. And when do you think you want to sell a company versus keeping it and growing it yourself? Oh boy, that's that is so that is such a personal question. It's it's like, you know, do you want to have children or not? <laughs> you know? Uh it's like 
I mean, I, there are a lot of people out there who want to buy to flip or who want to build in order to flip. You know, I, I have always over identified with my work and I've always poured a lot, probably too much of myself into my work. And it feels really good to be, to some extent, in charge of our own destiny right now. Um, you know, you never are completely, right? You have a board, you have users, you have a team who has put their fate in your hands, and you have a lot of obligations to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's something really intoxicating about being able to make those choices. And, uh, like, for example, I would never have taken the route that Parse did where they didn't really care about about money. <laughs> you know, I feel like that that limited our options. We had to go back for Series B or get bought. And it's kind of like, you know, we weren't even making enough to cover our AWS bill at that point. And I feel like that really limited our ability to build a sustainable business. Like, I'm not in it for a flash in the pan. We could have sold this company so many times over already. But like, we have a vision. We want to change the world in certain ways. And you know, I don't trust anyone else with that vision right now. And like you mentioned, PARS, it didn't have money as a first priority. However, Honeycomb has a pricing. Mm-hmm. Um, what factors come into play when determining a price for Honeycomb or software? <laughs> well, for infrastructure products, uh, I think that it makes sense Um, to try to recoup your costs. (laughs) I know this is like some pretty advanced stuff here, right? But like, you know, so we've got our, I know how much it costs for us to spin up another unit of service, you know, and a unit of service for us is like, uh, you know, the message bus pipeline, a couple of storage nodes, and I'm not factoring human costs at this point, but so I know how much um, I can put on it. um, And I don't want to be selling AWS at a loss. You know, that's what we were doing at Paris. Honestly, we were selling AWS resources to developers for less than we were paying for them, which is insane. That's just crazy. That's unsustainable. No wonder they loved us, right? Yeah, I was just thinking, like, I should have known about this. I, I would have loved it. Uh, right? It's crazy. It's so crazy. We would joke about people, like, doing their personal backups to S3 via our API, you know. And they weren't, but they totally could have. Um, so I'm not doing that. I want to build a sustainable business and like we're well on our way. Um, We should be profitable by the end of the year or we could, we could be, Um, we are on path to be. And that's because Christine and I are fairly financially conservative. Um, We want to have as many options available to us as possible. And that means being, you know, having, being able to pay our own way should we choose to do that. What are your thoughts on having several pricing options I see some companies have a freemium option, mm-hmm. others have a basic, and there's also an enterprise level pricing. Oh boy. Well, <laughs> uh, pricing is the hardest thing that I have done, like hands down all year. It is, um, and you're never done with it, and it never feels right. Um, so I know what I'm going for. I want our product to be 1% to 10% of your infrastructure spend. You know, I know that for most, SaaS is the future. Like, we can just all agree, I think, this software services are, are the future. Um, I think this is a very clear trend. I remember, you know, 10, 15 years ago when 
we were all expected to run our own IMAP servers and SendMail servers. And we spent all this time and energy as engineers tweaking our organization's spam filters and antivirus. You know, and then Gmail came out, and suddenly it's like, why are we wasting our engineering cycles on this? This is stupid, you know? We can free up an engineer to work on our core business value if we just stop hosting our own email and give it to Google who can do it better for us. Uh, right? And that was amazing. And uh, we have been systematically going through as an industry one by one by one of these things that we all do that are not core to our business and outsourcing them. And I think that there's been a real push to do this with metrics and uh, monitoring and, and you know, new rel- the three most valuable infrastructure outcomes have all been in this space over the past 10, 15 years between Splunk and New Relic and now AppDynamics. So I think that there's a lot of appetite. You know, there's still a lot of people who you'll hear say, oh no, we have to bring this in-house and we need to use open source so that we can, you know, make one-line fixes when we need to. Mm -hmm. They're in the minority though, and they are wrong. (laughs) And they're slowly realizing that. Oh, I see. You know, it's just the scarcest resource in the world is engineering cycles. And you should be spending as many of your engineering cycles on your core business differentiators as you possibly can. Everything else, like everything else, uh, you should be paying to people whose job it is to be good at that thing because that's their core business differentiator, right? And you should pay them to do that. And at Honeycomb, is, it's a fairly new company, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we were born uh, January 1st of 2016. Okay. And part of an important challenge when building a company is to establish a culture. Mm-hmm. And one of these things is about meetings. What are your cultural habits around meetings? <laughs> well, that's, a, that's such a great question. <laughs> uh, I assume you read the Twitter rant the other day. <laughs> I read your Twitter feed where you like talking about this topic. And I, I thought it was very interesting what you said. You know, I think that the answer to this is so reflective. Like you can learn so much about a company by asking this. Like a lot of people have never thought about it in those terms. They're like, what? We don't have a meeting culture. I'm like, oh, yes, you do. <laughs> you're just not aware of it. And this tells me that, you know, you're perhaps not thoughtful with people's time. I do, I really like the culture of it's okay to walk in. It's okay to walk out. If you don't think is that this is the best use of your time, if you're angry and frustrated about having to be in this meeting, don't come. I mean, don't complain about it if we decided something that involves you and you weren't here, you know. But, like, if you trust the people in this room to make the decision without you, go. If you think that, you know, like I feel like we should, we should view meetings like so many other things as a constant experiment. You know, I don't think that having any pattern for too long is good. I think we should constantly be questioning where we're spending our time. Is this the maximum impact? Is this hurting other people who have different workflows than I do? You know, you see managers do this all the time because as they get farther and farther away from being an engineer, they forget what it's like to need five to six hours of un- interrupted time in order to make any progress at all you know because as a manager pretty much your job consists of going to meetings having one-on-ones doing email communicating and most of it can be broken up into small pieces right they don't get this whole you know well at least for me this is how it works as a manager I'm very distractible I'm doing little things going from here to there and as an engineer I am on the other extreme I cannot function with you know 
only three hour stretch of time. I have to be able to expect that five, six hour stretch minimum. And then I'll just like, I will put on my headphones and like, I don't even want to take a break to go to the bathroom. I'm just like in it. I'm in the zone. So I think that like, you need to be, you need to know yourself, right? You need to know yourself and what works well for you and how you do your best work and look for ways to get that. And usually you, we all have to teach other people things about us, you know, things that make us work well and things that are really hard for us. We can't assume that everyone is like us. And part of having this flexibility of opt-in and opt-out is analogous to what you mentioned earlier about developer cycles. Developer cycles, yes, always scarce. I mean, when's the last time you looked up on a Wednesday and was just like, yeah, well, done for the month. You know, it's just, no, we have to be ruthless when it comes to prioritizing what we spend our time on, or else these decisions get made for us in ways that are probably not how we would have chosen. You know, when we look back and we're like, oh, I wish I had done this instead of doing that and that and that and that and that. Why didn't I make time for this thing that would have made a huge difference in my career or in my in our, in our roadmap, you know, mm-hmm. you get buffeted by the winds if you aren't like putting a firm hand on the rough rudder of your own time. At Honeycomb, are some days meeting free? You know, um, yes, as of literally today. I, but the thing is that like we were eight people, right? And eight as of today. Okay. And for most of the last year, it was, you know, it was me and Christine for six months. And then it was four of us for, for like another six months. And we just didn't have meetings, you know, we, we would have one to kick off the beginning of the week where we just like sync up on customers, sync up on our roadmap for the week. And then like nobody else, I, I had a few things, you know, I've, I've been doing the sales and the marketing, like wrapping things up, but like the other three would just like sit there with their headphones on and never be interrupted. We are now getting to the point where you now have like some different functional areas, you know, like customer success and sales and marketing and like core engineering. And each of them needed to have their own little stand-ups or syncs. And suddenly people were just like, whoa, this is like meetings. <laughs> so now it's time to call a no meeting zone for sure. And at the beginning, you mentioned you have a background in systems, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just now you mentioned the company is eight people and you were working on sales and marketing. What has that been like? Oh God, it's hell. It is so hard. Like, uh, it's so hard and it's so weird. And it's like, it's not, my brain doesn't work this way, but it's, um, I did not, I actually aggressively did not want to be CEO. Why? Because I wanted to be a very expressly engineering role. I wanted to be CTO. Mm-hmm. So we had three founders in the beginning, and the third one didn't work out. You know, he's a, he's a dear friend, was, is, um, and that's it, rough. You know, it's like when any relationship breaks up, it's really, really, really hard. But that, that, was, that had been his, his role, and I was supposed to be CTO, and Christine was going to focus on product. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was what was left. And I am, I am very, very much motivated by what needs to be done, what has to be done. You know, I don't sit here and dick around with technology for the sake of, you know, just the prettiest algorithm. I'm just, I'm not motivated that way. Um, this is what has to be done. So for now, it's, it's me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sales and marketing, yeah, like we think of engineering as hard, but honestly, engineering is the easy part. Yeah, I have so much respect for sales and marketing, and I did to start with, but now I do just like viscerally in my gut. Like what they do is hard. Like getting someone to want to look at your product is hard. Getting 
knowing how to talk about your product and what that means and how to make it clear that it's different and in what ways it's different. These things are, like Christine and I have agonized over this for an entire year and it's starting to resonate with people and it looks easy um, and it's not. <laughs> Has it been mostly trial and error or are you reading certain books or Coursera or something? for? Uh, it's really trial and error. It's talking to people. You know, I'm really fortunate to be surrounded by so many amazing people who have been very generous with their time. But it's, um, I only really learn by banging my head against something. I, I learn by doing. Um, it's really hard for me to apply abstract concepts, especially since, I'll be totally honest, I don't enjoy it, you know, which is which is why I gave in and, and hired someone in sales business, you know, early early this year and marketing just recently because I started to recognize that I really believe that people are only going to do really good work when they enjoy it to some to some degree. Mm -hmm. Even if even if it's like hate fucking, <laughs> you know, you have to be into it. And I cannot get into it. I can't, I can't, like I'm always pushing myself suffering through doing the minimum and just hating it you know uh and i'm not that's not how you get good joyful creative work that is not a creative process right mm -hmm. and so i had to find someone who does like nerding out over pricing policies like these people exist you know yeah uh and i part of me wishes i was one of them but i'm not and i've been pushing it for a year and it's just it was time to given. Yes, definitely. And it, it, this is also a trade-off for people that are considering moving to a startup or a brand new company. You, It's a reality that you have to take other responsibilities. It's it. You are where everything stops. Like if you don't get it done, it's not getting done and the company will fail and you have to be okay with that. I love that. I love pressure. That makes, that brings meaning for me. Uh, it makes the work meaningful because, um, You know, if it's like, well, if I don't get it done, no, it doesn't really matter. Some meals will pick it up. May or may not be important. May or may not ever launch. You know, that is the opposite of what motivates me. And I do like that feeling of like being on the verge of panic almost. Yeah, definitely. Well, Charity, thank you for coming on the show. I really enjoyed chatting with you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. 